Right. If you have your Bible, open and find the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We're now making our way through the second section of Revelation. The first was the first three chapters, dominated mainly in chapters 2 and 3 by the letters to uh, seven different churches in, in Asia Minor. And we're now firmly into the second section, which runs roughly, I say roughly, through chapters 4 through 7. I say roughly because this morning we're... You'll see in chapter 6, the heading is the seven seals. When you read the chapter, you only find six of them. (laughs) The seventh doesn't actually come until the first few verses of chapter 8. I think there's a reason for that, but I think that seventh seal is going to be a transition, meant to be a transition between the seals in the section we're looking at right now and the trumpets that are going to be in the next section. However, I think technically, I say it runs roughly 4 to 7 because it technically goes to the first few verses of chapter 8. But anyway, here we are. And uh, we've already looked at chapters 4 and 5 in this second section. Pastor Brian taught on chapter 4 uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we looked at chapter 5 last week. And they, just to review, those two chapters together present us uh, a picture of all of creation from the aspect and from the vantage point of heaven. The whole is two chapters, but presenting one, one scene around the throne of God and, his, and what, what the, the cherubim and the, the heavenly host are singing to him around his throne, the statements that are made in those songs revealing uh, the, just all of creation from the vantage point of heaven. And so I'll say that to say, when we come to chapter 6 today, and you'll read it in just a minute, you, you'll under, and you understand the imagery that's presented in it and these seals that are broken on the scroll and what those seals are intended to convey and represent, you'll appreciate all the more that chapters 4 and 5 focus so heavily on the sovereignty of God over all things um, and His goodness. Because like I said, I've said this many times, but some of you are here for the first time. So each of the, Revelation is 22 chapters, but it's not a linear book. It's a, it's a, it's a cyclical book. And seven different sections in Revelation, each, each of the seven sections covering the same period of time. That period of time being between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Usually, usually early on in a section, there is some some mention of, a, of an event that, that was early in Jesus' first, or it was in Jesus' first coming. So there's a reference to the cross or to the resurrection or even to the ascension. That's first coming stuff. And at the end of a section, there's a reference to uh, things associated with his second coming, like, his coming, like the second coming or like the, 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 the judgment at the end of the age, which means that's, a, that's the bookends of each section. And in between is a description of um, life in the world, this present world for the church between those two times. And it's because of that structure that we know that Revelation is not a book merely about the future. It's not. It's, it, 
we, we can almost come with that gut instinct that that's what Revelation is, that Revelation is just a book about the end times. Revelation is just a book about uh, the, the future. And so it's a, it's a book that is really relevant only for the super curious. But that's not true. It's not true. It is as much a book for us as it was the believers in the first century and in every age until Christ returns. And so I say all that to say today we're in the middle Chapter 6 is in the middle of the second section. And so what we find in it is a description of life for the church, us, throughout the period of the, the church age, that, that whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. We wait for the return of Christ. And this chapter, Revelation 6, is, is sobering. Um, we're gonna, what we're going to read and see here are the conditions that Christians in every age, every age, not just right before Jesus comes back, in every age, what Peter and Paul experienced, what we experienced, what, what Christians will experience until Jesus comes again, the conditions that Christians can, can expect until Jesus comes back. But that this chapter is sandwiched between chapters 4 and 5, and chapter 7, uh, which is an, another scene in heaven and, and, and the victory of the Lamb, we're reminded in chapter 6 not to lose heart or to forget that Christ is sovereign over all things. He will return one day and set everything right. So let's read the chapter and then we'll dive a little deeper into it. Revelation chapter 6. If you found that place in your Bible, follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a, a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, how long before you will judge 
and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand now flip with me just over to chapter 8 really quickly and look with me at the first five verses of that of that chapter when the lamb opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about half an hour Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, that, that, I, I read that. We're not going to spend a lot of time on those verses. I, some of that is going to be transitional that we'll talk about when we come to chapter 8. But that seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I think that that seventh seal is simply to be the fitting conclusion to all that we're going to see. Uh, the awe and the wonder of what we see in chapter 6. So let's pray and ask God's blessing to study His Word. Well, Lord, what we just read is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us eyes to see the truth in these words, that you would give us uh, minds to understand revelation. You intended us to understand it. You didn't, you didn't give us this book to hide things from us. You gave us these words so that we might understand and be encouraged today, just like the, those in the first century were. So, but we, we, we acknowledge to you, Lord, some of these things are hard to understand. So would you give us minds to understand what we need to see today? Would you please give us hearts then to embrace and love and see as important, care about what we see here, not be distracted by lesser things. Would you give us wills to obey what it is we're called to do here? Would you give us all ears to hear? Give me the help that I need to teach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we dive into the details of this chapter, I just want to point out that this chapter confirms that Jesus was exactly right when he spoke with his disciples in the upper room just before he was crucified, arrested and tried and crucified. Convicted, among other things, he told them in John 15, 20, 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We see the truth of that statement played out in the visions of chapter 6. You'll recall, if you were here, that in the last chapter, in chapter 5, we encountered a scroll. You remember what that scroll represented? The scroll represented in chapter 5 God's eternal plan for the world, the, the unfolding of human history between the time of the first coming and the second coming. How it's all going to play out. That's what's written on this scroll. And while the scene was in heaven, that scroll was presented as sealed up, unrevealed, unexecuted. They're crying out, who is worthy to open the scroll? Meaning, who is worthy to bring about and execute, not only just reveal, but bring about and execute God's intended purpose for His people and the whole world. And it was Jesus Christ who was worthy to do that. And it's in this chapter that he, that he begins to open the seals. And these are, there are seven seals like we just saw that, that seal up the scroll. Of course there are. You know, everything's three, seven, twelve. Um, but each of these seals that are going to be broken, most of the seals, represent the gradual unfolding. Not just particular events, but but general truths that are going to characterize this whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, between now and the end of history, and God's ultimate plan and purpose for it. And as the, as the seals are, are, are open, they, they reveal some devastating realities. I think the most sensible way of looking at this, if you're taking notes, here's how it's going to go. Um, I think that we're just going to make our way through each of the seals. I can't think of a more flowery way to do it let's just let's just do it all right so we're going to go seal one seal two seal three all the way to the end and again the seventh seal won't be till chapter eight but we'll deal with that more in depth later so with that let's take a closer look seal number one as jesus opens the first seal one of the four living creatures that i believe those four living creatures are cherubim uh, I, I get that from what we see in the book of old testament book of zechariah but that cherubim breaks the, the, the first seal, and he declares the vision that he sees as a result of the breaking of this first seal, and he sees a white horse. And that white horse had a rider, and the rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. I don't think there's any doubt that this first image represents Jesus himself. Okay? Why? How do we know that? Well, for one thing, the white horse mentioned here is mentioned again in Revelation 19, and it's most definitely Jesus. When he comes on the white horse in chapter 19, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth and a name written on his thigh that nobody knows but himself, and he's king of kings and lord of lords. It's Jesus. If it's Jesus there, it's Jesus here. Okay? And, and secondly... Here in verse 2, the rider is given a crown and he conquers. Now, we already saw that that language of conquering, we saw it last week in chapter 5, that language of conquering um, has to do with uh, things that Jesus did in his first coming. Look, for example, in chapter 5, verse 5. 
And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And, uh, and so that, that's language. And that you can see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, like that whole language is, is first coming language. The one, who, the one promised in the Old Testament to come from the tribe of Judah, the lion. And verse 6 described him as a lamb who was slain. So in chapter 5, this conquering had to do with his death and his resurrection. That's death and resurrection language, conquering. So in chapter 6, verse 2, he came out conquering and to conquer. So with this first seal opened and revealed, to me it becomes clear that this is the text itself telling us that what follows are going to be events that... that, that um, the, the events that follow in the later seals are events that will happen between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. During the whole church age. True of the early church, true of us today. How, how is verse 2 telling us that? Notice again verse 2 specifically says that he came out conquering and to conquer. That's, that's, that's not just describing one past event. He came out conquering. So that's... That, that, that first conquering, he came out conquering. That is a conquering that is already established, right? But he also came out to conquer, which is a future reality, okay? So, um, I think, I think that's, that's, that's the text itself telling. When he came out conquering, that's, that's first coming language. Cross and resurrection has already happened, so he comes out conquering already. And this is not just Revelation telling us this. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read conquering-like language associated with his death and resurrection. So, for example, if you're taking notes, Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, of Colossians 2, Colossians 2, 14 says that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. What's verse 15 say? And in so doing, he disarmed, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Triumphing, conquering through his death. Hebrews 2.14 Through death, he, Jesus... Through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Conquering language. Destroyed. Triumph. That's death language. But he also, according to the New Testament, triumphed and conquered through his resurrection. Romans 1.4. Romans 1.4 declares Jesus, quote, to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. In power. He was, he's always the Son of God, but now by virtue of His resurrection, He's the Son of God in power. In what way? Because now by virtue of His resurrection, as He says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God has always had all authority. Now the God-man has authority. Right? So, here in Revelation 6, 2, that that this one 
on the white horse, Jesus came out conquering. I take that to be a reference to the conquering he's already accomplished through his cross and his resurrection. Things associated with the first coming of Jesus. But it doesn't just say, does it, that he, comes, that he came out conquering. It also says that he came out to conquer. Something to come in the future. What might that be? In what way will Jesus conquer again in the future? Second coming. If, if, if he conquered the, the first time through a first coming, he'll conquer again through a second coming. So right off the bat, in the, in the opening of this first seal, we are reminded before any other seal is broken, we are reminded that Jesus is conquering, He has conquered by His cross and resurrection, and He will conquer again when He returns at His second coming, which is going to be described at the end of this chapter. And to have these two events mentioned in the first seal leads me to believe that the other things we're going to see in Revelation 6 are the things that are going to take place between these two events. From the days of the New Testament until He returns. In other words, the time in which we live right now. So what will those things be? We keep reading. The second seal. And we see the opening of the second seal in verses 3 and 4. And with the opening of the second seal, we meet, according to verse 4, another horse, bright red. What is that? That horse appears to me to represent persecution against Christians that believers will endure in the world until the time that Jesus returns. In fact, to take it a step further, the red horse here seems to me to re represent not merely persecution, but sometimes, if not oftentimes, martyrdom in many cases. Notice in verse 4 again, this horse and its rider, it says, came to take peace from the earth, which I take is a, a reference to persecution in general. But it also says in verse 4 that men should slay one another. That men should slay one another, which I take to be martyrdom in particular. Why would, why would we think this? Because at first glance, that, that, that men might slay one another. That It might look like it's referring to just war or murder in general. I mean, it, it, it just says that men should slay one another. It doesn't specifically say Christians or anything. I think the, the key word here is slay, right? Which I think is the, the key to interpret this slaying specifically as the killing of Christians. How so? Because later in this very chapter, when the fifth seal is open, we encounter these very Christians in verse 9. If you look at verse 9, which it says, these Christians who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. So the slaying in, verse, in chapter 6 is the slaying of people who had died for the word of God, for the witness that they had borne. That doesn't look like a description of slaying in general, but of the slaying of Christians in particular. They were slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne in the world to Jesus Christ. And for these reasons... The appearance of the red horse indicates the very real risk of persecution and sometimes even martyrdom 
that believers all over the world will encounter throughout all ages for their faithfulness and their witness to Christ. That has been an undeniable and documented historical reality throughout church history from the first days of the church to this very day. As many people, if not more people, are being martyred for their Christian faith today in the world than they ever were in the history of the church. And let me say that it's worth noting again that even with this risk for the Christian, God is still sovereign even when his people are persecuted or even die for their faith. And we see that. That's not just because I hope it's true. That's not just because I would like to believe that it's true. The the text says it. We see it in the... Look at verse 4 again. Notice verse 4 says that that nothing happens to God's people that is not, what's the word verse 4 uses? Permitted to take place. Permitted by who? The one on the throne, verses four, chapters 4 and 5. Do we see that anywhere else in the Bible? Yes, we do. We see it in Job. Right? God permitted Satan to do certain things. We see it in the story of Joseph. God permitted his brothers to sell him into slavery. Joseph finally sees his brothers again. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God meant it. God had an intention in it. He permitted it for his own holy and good reasons. And so just with Job and just with Joseph, God has a good purpose. And that good purpose is amply described in the book of Revelation time and time again. So the second seal represents the persecution and even martyrdom that Christians will face until Jesus returns. And that brings us to the third seal as it is opened and revealed. We see this in verses 5 and 6. And this seal represents yet, reveals yet another form of persecution, though not physical persecution, like we saw in the second seal. With the opening of this seal, we come across, according to verse 5, a black horse. And this time, the horse's rider is seen with a pair of scales in his hand. And basic daily food items such as wheat and barley are said to cost a denarius. What was a denarius? A whole day's wage. That's some expensive wheat. And, and other basic things like oil and wine cannot be had at all. Do not harm the oil and wine. Don't touch it. What, what is this supposed to represent? I believe that these are pictures of extreme economic hardship. And at many times, deliberately imposed economic hardship that Christians will have to face because of their commitment to Christ. We, of course, already saw this in the first section of Revelation in the churches of Thyatira and Pergamum. How first century Christians were... Remember, in some of these cities, they had trade guilds, trade unions, and, and, and in order to, uh, to, to join one of these trade unions... They had to participate in pagan practices. 
but Christians didn't feel comfortable participating in those pagan practices, so they refused to join the, the trade guilds. But once they joined the, refused to join the trade guilds, they were ostracized from society. Nobody would buy goods from them. They couldn't buy goods from anyone else. They, were, they saw their businesses suffer. They, they were discriminated against in the marketplace. And anybody that has eyes to see and has, has had eyes to see in our own culture, in our own day, for years now, Christian bakers, Christian photographers, who, who couldn't in good conscience participate in weddings or marriages, that they, 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 they did not, uh, they felt went against God's word and his will. They were sued in courts. They, were, they suffered devastating financial loss. Some had to close their doors. Christian universities and seminaries under threat of being sued or being closed for refusing to pay for uh, and provide, for example, certain medical services to its employees that they find unethical. It happens more than we realize. And it's happening with gaining speed and strength. And it's yet another form of persecution that the church will endure until Jesus returns. And on top of all this, we come to the fourth seal, which reveals yet another hardship, verses 7 and 8. And we, when it's broken, it reveals in verse 8 a pale horse, and its rider's name is Death, and Hades followed with him. The grave followed with him. And also, according to verse 8, if you're looking at verse 8, the, this horse and its rider brings with him, it says, things like famine and pestilence, wild beasts. That, that kind of description to me doesn't seem to represent necessarily hardships and affliction that, that, that is specific to Christians, um, but rather hardships and afflictions that come to every person. It's, that we live, in a, we live in a broken and fallen world, Christian or not. I mean, are, are, are Christians the only one that experience famine? Are Christians the only one that experience pestilence? No. Because we live in a, broken, a world that's broken by sin, Christians will suffer general hardships, as in sickness and in death and, and tragedy, in addition, in addition, the, the, the tragedies and the afflictions that that are common to man. Christians will experience those in addition to the additional specific hardships and persecutions that come specifically because we're Christians. Everyone in the world suffers hardships, but there are additional sufferings that Christians face specifically owing to our faith. So up to this point, as the seals are broken and the scroll of human history unfolds, all we see so far is suffering and hardship for those in Christ. But what is to be the end of all this? We begin to find the answer in the fifth seal, in verses 9 through 11. It is not surprising in the slightest if we have felt the gravity and the weight and the sorrow and the suffering of the second, third, and fourth seals, that when we come to the fifth seal, 
We find those Christians who have died for their faith, that is from the second seal, crying out to the Lord. We see that in verse 10. In that verse, they are crying out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? If you're a frequent reader of the Psalms, that is a common refrain. How long, O Lord? It is not... That ought to be encouraging in and of itself. Okay? I mean, it's never... When, when times are good, we never go, How long, O God? Well, I have to endure this wonderful time. It's, it's always in the midst of suffering. And how encouraging is it that the Bible itself not just gives us permission, but gives us example of beings, people being utterly honest with God. How long? And God doesn't take that as an affront to His goodness. How long? But you don't need to overlook in the question presented here how the Lord is addressed in this prayer. I mean, they're crying out, how long? But they're also addressing this one as, O sovereign Lord. These are the people who have given their lives to the point of death. They died. They were slain. And they still do not question the good sovereignty of God over their lives. Inasmuch as He's sovereign over all things. We saw this as early as the second seal, in which the persecution was under the permissive. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth that men should slay one another. This was under the permissive direction and purpose of God. We also saw this sovereignty pictured for us in chapters 4 and 5. Christ being depicted as seated on a throne. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth recognizing His Lordship. We don't need to miss how in Revelation their understanding of God's sovereignty does not lead them to expect exemption from hardship exemption from persecution but it most certainly gives them hope and rest in the midst of a hardship which is more comforting to find yourself in an unspeakable tragedy and find out God had nothing to do with it or that he has he was sovereign over it you just don't understand his purpose yet that would be frightening to me frightening to me if I found out God had nothing to do with it if God had nothing to do with it How can I have any hope that he can get me out of it? How much less hopeful would we be in our suffering if we had no hope that God were sovereign on his throne, directing the course of events of our lives according to his good purpose? But this is precisely the hope expressed in verse 10 in their cry. Even as it cries out for greater understanding, how long? And this has been a cry from believers since the days of the New Testament. Since the days that Jesus ascended back into heaven after acknowledging his disciples, Jesus said, in this world you have trouble. From that day on, how long? But having promised to return and judge the world, his people on that basis hopefully ask, how long? 
When will it finally end? How will it end? And that's revealed in the sixth seal. The opening of this seal begins in verse 12, and it runs through the end of the chapter, which indicates the importance of it because of the amount of space devoted to it in this chapter. There's more words of description of this seal than in any other seal. And with it, the curtain begins to be pulled back to reveal the judgment of God and the vindication of His people in His great name. This is a, this is a description of what will take place at the second coming of Christ. How do we know? Because verse 16 calls this event the wrath of the Lamb. And it's a truly horrifying scene that is depicted. With the vision of this sixth seal, John sees six objects. Six objects that describe the cataclysmic judgment. Six objects. You can count them. In verse 12, he describes a great earthquake. The sun became black. The full moon became like blood. Verse 13 says, The stars of the sky fell to the earth. Verse 14 says, The sky vanished and every mountain and island was removed. I mean, can you imagine any more cataclysmic events than those? And think think whole Bible with me, okay? Think whole Bible. Can you see in that description right there the contrast with Genesis 1? The Bible begins in Genesis 1 with the orderly putting together of all these things. And God saying, this is good. But with the curse of sin and the judgment coming on all those who have stood opposed to God and His people, in the end, all of these things will come undone. And all these things will be destroyed. And at this point, too, John doesn't just see objects, but six classes of people. Six classes of people. And he ranks them in verse 15 from highest to lowest. He mentions kings of earth, then great ones, then generals, then the rich, then the powerful, and finally, everyone else, slave or free. In other words, no one outside of Christ, no one outside of faith in Him, no matter their station, no matter their privilege in this world, will escape what verse 16 says calls the wrath of the Lamb. And in fact, John says also in verse 16 that that day will be so terrifying for unbelievers that all of those groups will try to hide. They'll try to hide themselves, quoting verse 16. In the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. Verse 16, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the Lamb. Utterly terrifying. When you think about it, what are they doing? These people in that day, they're trying to seek refuge from the strongest and seemingly most secure earthly things. Mountains and rocks. Useless. Utterly incapable of salvation. Jesus will win. And those who know Him and are found in Him by how? Repentance and faith. 
repent of your, of your sins toward God and put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, those who are found in Jesus by repentance and faith have nothing to fear of that day, every reason to hope and rejoice in that day. As we'll, we'll see in chapter 7, there's a whole lot of reasons to rejoice. Of the things that, that are happening in the world, and the things that happen in our culture, anything that happens in the world, anything that happens in the culture that, that causes you to get discouraged, causes you to get nervous, even frightened, by the seeming victory, seeming uh, victory of sin and power of sin and evil in the world, just remember... From our vantage point down here on earth, the scroll hasn't fully been unrolled yet. Right? The end is going to be the best part. Let's pray.